Well, I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. If you're new this morning, I am so thrilled, humbled, excited that you're here. Um, Pastor Shaq mentioned this at the beginning. There are those cards on your seat with the QR code. We just want to know that you're here. We want to be able to follow up with you, take you out for a cup of coffee, get lunch with you, learn your story, and see if this really can be the church that you and your family really find a home in. Um, we're continuing in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's maybe like roughly week 20 at this point. I don't know. It's been a long time. It's like week 20 and it's chapter 10, so we're doing great. We should finish by 2026. Um, and I want to just maybe kind of set the groundwork for the passage we're going to talk through this morning and the conversation that we're going to have. This story captured in Mark chapter 10, this is Mark's version of a story that is known as the story of the rich young ruler. So it's got that name, not because of the way that Mark necessarily writes this story, but because of the way that Matthew and Luke write that story. And it's a passage that is very clearly focused on money, wealth, and possessions. So needless to say, I'm a little bit nervous just to talk about it. I have never found myself in a church setting where a pastor didn't work through this passage and then bend himself over backwards trying to make it say something other than what it says. I've never been in a setting before where we're just going to talk really honestly about what Jesus himself says very clearly. And so this is a story because for many of us, if we've grown up in church before, we've probably heard this sermon, we've, we've probably heard this passage taught in different places. There are probably going to be things that you hear me say that won't match with what you've already been taught about this passage. I want to make sure that we create space for that so that we can hold those things in tension. We're going to try to just work through this passage, make sense of it in its historical context. We're going to try to make some sense of some of the words in their original language, and we're going to receive these words that Jesus speaks the way that Jesus speaks them. And so as we do this, I just want to make sure that we're all approaching this with humility. And it always feels like it's wise at a moment like this to say, we believe that the Bible is perfect. We do not believe that my interpretations of the Bible are always perfect. And so we're going to do our best together faithfully to walk through this passage and make sense of it. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll start. Father, thank you that we can be gathered together. Father, I believe that as we do this, we do it as family. We are supposed to be sisters and brothers. Thank you for the work that you entrusted to us this week, the relationships and friendships and family. Father, thank you for those moments of peace and joy and also for reminding us in those moments of struggle and stress and anxiety that you are present to us all the time. And so would you be with us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
passage begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So this story, like so many of the stories that we've already talked through in the Gospel of Mark, is a story that is set on the way. Jesus is teaching the disciples as they traverse, travel southward through ancient Palestine toward Jerusalem. This story then is more than just a historical event that involves Jesus and this man and Jesus' disciples. It's a story in a historical event where Jesus will continue teaching his followers what it means to be a disciple as they are on the way to Jerusalem and Jesus' death and crucifixion. And Jesus is going to use this story in two primary ways. He's going to continue teaching the disciples the ways of the kingdom And he's going to continue teaching them how they're supposed to live out Jesus' kingdom mission even once he's gone. And just within the context of chapter 10, we've already seen Jesus doing these things. Chapter 10 begins with 12 verses that are focused on an interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees where the Pharisees ask him about divorce. And Jesus uses that moment to teach the disciples that in the kingdom, women and men are equals and that women are not objects to be controlled or dominated. Then in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, the passage that Pastor Shaq walked through last week, Jesus taught his disciples that children and often overlooked and undervalued people group in ancient Jewish culture In the kingdom, they are a people of great worth and value. And now, as the disciples are continuing to follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to use this interaction with this man to teach his disciples and us about wealth. Mark tells us in verse 17 that a man runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees, And he asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man refers to Jesus as good teacher. This is not a benign greeting. It's an ancient Middle Eastern custom in which a person of means or status approaches another person of means and status and flatters them with the hope and anticipation that this person is then going to respond by flattering them and return. Jesus, however, does not respond with flattery. Instead, he dismisses the man's words outright. He looks at the man and says, why do you call me good? A way of almost naming and identifying and signaling to the fact I know what you're doing. 
not going to respond to it. We're not doing this thing where you're a person of means and wealth and you'll flatter me and because I'm influential and have these disciples, I'll flatter you and then we'll just make sure this whole social construct just keeps working without being challenged. No. No one is good except for God alone. And then Jesus begins to quote in shorthand form the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on it because I don't think it's actually pertinent to the larger story we're having, but there's an aspect of what Jesus does with this man that's really interesting in his response. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and honor your father and mother are each Ten Commandments. Jesus inserts, you shall not defraud. That's not one of the original Ten Commandments. And yet Jesus just lays that in there as though it's on equal footing. He just places that in front of the man and says, to keep my laws, it's not just, here's the Ten Commandments, this one's in there too. This one matters also. It seems that just by reciting in shorthand form these commandments, that this is Jesus' answer to the man's question of how he can inherit eternal life. It's a really curious reply. Because taken at face value, it seems that Jesus is suggesting to the man that religious performance is all that's needed to inherit eternal life. But at no point in Mark's gospel or anywhere in Jesus' ministry do we see or hear Jesus teaching his disciples that they can, in fact, inherit eternal life or the kingdom through religious performance or rule-keeping. We've seen and heard Jesus teach his followers that it's their heart that matters most, that it's their love for God and their neighbors that matters most. In fact, we've seen and heard Jesus teach in ways that reinforce and confirm what Old Testament prophets like Amos taught, where Amos, repeating words that he heard God speak to him, said to the ancient Israelites, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The man replies to Jesus in verse 20, teacher. Notice that he's not calling him good teacher anymore, just teacher. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Now let's just take a moment and enjoy this man's audacity. According to the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish writings, only three people in the entire history of the Jewish faith have ever kept the law perfectly. Abraham, Moses, and Aaron. This man seems to think very well of himself. Because he looks at Jesus and says, 
I'm the fourth man in Jewish history to perfectly keep the law. Apparently, like this man, like many people in our world today, believes that it's religious performance that earns favor with God. But Jesus doesn't hear the man's reply and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Instead, Jesus responds this way. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, imagine that. This man thinks he's the fourth person in the history of the Jewish faith to perfectly keep the law. He is a person of great wealth. He just approached Jesus and started by trying to flatter him. And Jesus looks at him and says, you lack something. You don't have everything you think you do. Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' word because just like in our culture today, in ancient Jewish culture, it was believed that wealth was a direct sign of God's favor and blessing. So when the disciples hear Jesus say how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, they legitimately would be amazed by that. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't refute the man's claim that he's kept the law perfectly. Instead, Jesus looks at the man who seems to think he lacks nothing and tells him, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus is attempting to disciple the man. A man who it seems doesn't believe he needs to be discipled. He, like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, seems to believe that his religious performance should have earned him some special standing with God. He, a man of great wealth, seems to believe what he's been taught throughout his life, that his wealth is a sign of God's unique blessing and favor on his life. And yet, in Jesus' eyes, this man's religious performance and vast wealth mean nothing. They don't qualify him to be a disciple of Jesus. In the kingdom, religious performance and material wealth do not qualify us for eternal life. And I think Jesus' four-part instruction to the man is important for us to pay close attention to. First, Jesus says, go. It's the exact same word that's used in several stories throughout the Gospels where Jesus performs a miraculous healing. It can also be translated as get up. In Mark 1, 
Mark 2, twice in Mark 5, and in Mark 7 alone, Jesus employs this same word when healing a person of a physical affliction. It's worth asking then, does Jesus believe that this man's wealth, rather than functioning as a blessing, is actually an affliction he needs to be healed from? That the impact of his wealth has made him sick in a way that he needs to be healed. Second, Jesus says, sell everything you have. This might sound like an extreme instruction. Taken out of the context of the gospel, it sounds like an extreme instruction. But in the context of Mark's gospel, it isn't extreme at all. Every person who Jesus has called to be his disciple has had to leave everything to follow him. Matthew had to leave his vocation and the source of his income. Matthew, not unlike this rich man, had to leave behind his vast wealth to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew left behind their vocation and source of income. James and John left behind their vocation and source of income. And they also left behind their father Zebedee. Even the story of Zacchaeus that's found in Luke 19 tells us of a man who finds Jesus and chooses on his own to then leave behind his vocation, sell all of his belongings, and return to the people he had defrauded all that he had stolen from them and to return it with interest. In order to follow Jesus, the disciples had to give up the, their entire lives. Their work, their income, their accumulated financial resource, their homes, even their families. They had to be willing to relinquish all of it to follow Jesus. And in so doing, join him on the way to Jerusalem and inherit eternal life. Jesus isn't instructing the rich man to do anything that he hasn't already asked every one of his disciples to do. Third, Jesus says, give to the poor. Again, this might seem like an extreme instruction. And to some, it might sound like the redistribution of wealth to under-resourced people. But this isn't an extreme instruction either. Instead, it's an ethic that we see embraced and lived out by the early church. In Acts 2, The very first Christians lived out their faith in this way, according to Luke. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Jesus is telling the rich man to do the very thing that he seems to have taught the disciples so well and so thoroughly that after Jesus is dead and risen and the disciples go about building the early church, this ethic of selling everything and giving to those in need is at the foundation of this new community they build. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone in need. 
Jesus in our story in Mark isn't asking this rich man to do anything that he doesn't expect the earliest Christians to do. And fourth, Jesus says, then come, follow me. Only after relinquishing everything that he has, everything that defines him, everything that he uses to ensure his own security and well-being, everything that he possesses to ensure that he's not dependent on anyone other than himself, only after relinquishing all of that will the man be ready to follow Jesus and inherit eternal life. It's as though Jesus knows that if this man cannot first do this, then at some point on the way to Jerusalem when things start to get hard, when persecution and pain and suffering and opposition begin to come, it's as though Jesus knows this man will abandon the way and return to his former life and wealth. It seems that we cannot follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem until Jesus is all we have. Until the entirety of who we are depends on him alone. Jesus knows in ways that the disciples do not that following him will get very difficult. He knows how intense the pain, suffering, persecution, and opposition will get, and he knows that if his followers haven't given everything up that they had to follow him, it'd be really easy to abandon him and turn back to their former lives. There's a story, actually, in the Gospel of John where Jesus teaches the crowd something very difficult and challenging. He begins to forecast for the crowds just how hard following him will be, that following him will involve suffering and pain. And in the story, John tells us that the vast majority of the people in the crowds that had been following Jesus turn their backs on him and depart from him, returning to their former lives. And in that story, in John we're taught that the call of the disciple is to abandon everything to follow Jesus so that we might be able to say to Jesus like Peter and the disciples do in that story, when everyone else is leaving and returning back to their wealth and possessions, that we like Peter and the disciples should look at Jesus and when he says to us, are you going to leave too? Our response should be Peter's. Where else can we go? You're all we have. Jesus tells the man to sell his possessions and give to the poor because unless he can do this, he won't be able to follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Church Jesus it seems, is telling us that releasing all of our financial wealth and selling everything we have and giving the proceeds to the poor, it's a signal that our hearts belong to him alone. And that when things get hard and we experience opposition and persecution, we won't, like the crowds, turn our back on Jesus and abandon him. 
wealth, it seems, is a liar. It works on our hearts, convincing us that we can make ourselves self-sufficient and independent, that we can secure our own lives without depending on Jesus, that we can meet our own needs without depending on Jesus. Wealth, it seems, entices us to live our lives in ways that oppose Jesus and the ways of the kingdom and that make it difficult for us to recognize our absolute and fundamental need for Jesus. I think if we're to receive this story in the way that Mark seems to want us to receive it, we can only really come to one clear, stark conclusion. People with wealth can live righteous lives like this man did and believe they've been blessed by God only to discover that they've never actually known him. Story about the rich man walking away sad never to return, never to follow Jesus, never to inherit eternal life is reminiscent of a prophecy Jesus tells in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. This is what Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. The man in our story doesn't say, Lord, Lord. He says, good teacher. The man in our story doesn't say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Instead, he says, teacher, all these laws I've kept since I was a boy. In our, in our story, Jesus doesn't say to the man, depart from me. The man chooses on his own to depart from Jesus. And Mark makes it clear that the reason the man turned his back on Jesus and departed sad from the way was his wealth. Mark doesn't leave us any editorial room to wonder if it could have been a different reason. This man's wealth was his barrier to inheriting eternal life. And this is why I think Mark records Jesus telling the disciples twice and in emphatic terms that it is very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say it's impossible, but Jesus is clear and sober-minded in his warning. Wealth makes it exceedingly difficult to inherit eternal life. Now, how are we doing? Let's take a moment and just breathe. I want to take a moment and let you kind of like acknowledge your feelings. To be aware of what your body's doing in this moment. If you're feeling tension or stress or anxiety. I want to make space for those feelings 
and the things you're processing before we continue. It's a bit of an aside, but every time I've ever heard this passage taught before, the pastor has taught me and the congregation about Jesus' language that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And the thing that's been taught to me is that in Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, there was a gate that was known as the needle gate and that camels would get down on their knees and while it was difficult, they could walk through it. It was used as a way of just illustrating that yes, it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, but not impossible. It's just a little bit more difficult than maybe just walking through a gate. Um, I used seven commentaries for this sermon. Six of them say that story about the needle gate is historically and factually untrue. There is no needle gate in Jerusalem. The seventh commentary just didn't mention it at all. Jesus was using a well-known idiom of his time. There was no needle gate, if you've ever been taught that. Just, let's just let that one go together. So what does all of this mean for us? If we are disciples of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem with him, what are we to take from this story? How does any of this change the way we're to live our lives in our neighborhoods, families, and workplaces. First, we need to make sense of what Jesus is teaching his disciples and us. And to do that, we need to specifically state and identify what this passage is about. The story is about the dangers and pitfalls of wealth and how wealth afflicts our hearts and can create significant obstacles to inheriting eternal life. American Christianity has sought to teach people that they can have significant financial resource and keep it all for themselves and still follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. In fact, some facets of American Christianity teach that wealth is a sign of God's blessing and favor and that it's something we should be actively pursuing and celebrating. Jesus disagrees. Jesus teaches that wealth can make it very difficult to follow Jesus. And he divorces the idea that wealth is a signal of God's blessing or favor from the reality of what truly receives God's blessing. According to Jesus, wealth and bear with me based on the language of the passage, according to Jesus, wealth might signal nothing more than that we're really good at appearing righteous while defrauding people along the way. We might look really holy while cheating people along the way. This passage is about the dangers of wealth. Full stop. And we can't really figure out how to apply it to our lives until we reckon with that. 
Second, what does it teach us about the kingdom? These are the last four verses of this story. Beginning in verse 28, then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children in fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. To say it clearly, Jesus is not advocating the prosperity gospel here. What he's saying is that the kingdom is a place where we give up everything and gain back more than we could ever dream or imagine. Matthew, Simon, and Andrew left their vocations, homes, and income to follow Jesus. James and John left their vocations, homes, incomes, and family to join Jesus on the way. And in Jesus, everything is returned to them and more, but not even close to the way that the prosperity gospel would want us to believe. They no longer have one home. They have a home in every village they'll travel to. This isn't like they give up their one home and get six along the coast of California. It's as they live their mission out, they'll have a house and home everywhere they need to go. They no longer have their nuclear family, but the entire family of God becomes their mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, daughters and sons. They have more family than they know what to do with now. They have more friends than they know what to do with. They have people everywhere they go. We've already talked through this earlier in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs of two and said, take nothing with you. Everywhere they go, people will provide for their material needs. They'll have money when they need it. They'll have food when they need it. They'll have clothes when they need it. And they'll have Jesus. They'll have eternal life too. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us, church. If I lost my home, or if my family lost our home, wouldn't many of you try to figure out how to take us in? Like, honestly. If we lost our home, you would be there to figure out how to take us in. You're all my mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. And all those kids in kids' church right now, whether I want them or not, are my daughters and sons too. If I couldn't afford school clothes for my kids, wouldn't you step in and help? If we didn't have food, wouldn't almost all of you offer us groceries? And despite all of it, my family and I would have Jesus. We'd have eternal life. And even though we'd have nothing, we'd have everything in abundance. 
The last thing, what does this teach us about Jesus' kingdom mission? I think it means our resource isn't for us. I don't think it was ever meant for us. I don't think Jesus gave the Israelites all of that gold and silver on their way out of Egypt so that they could just have gold bangles. Is that the word? Is that, that's jewelry, right? Gold bangles, are those a thing? People have bangles? I'm looking to, thank you very much for the confirmation here. Jesus, God wasn't just giving the Israelites jewelry. He was giving them something that would be turned into resource that they could use to bless the nations around them and that they could use to build a temple to worship God in. We're simply not meant to accrue in ever greater amounts financial resource for ourselves. To live Jesus' kingdom mission means using our resource to meet our neighbor's needs. We should be so extravagant in our generosity that some people might think we're being wasteful. We need to be able to say, like a friend of mine recently said, money is stupid. And then give out of our abundance, whether big or small, to meet our neighbor's needs. It means not worrying about leaving an inheritance to our children and instead trusting the people of God to make sure after Julia and I are gone that my kids will be cared for. Like if something happened to Julia and I, I mean, right here in the middle are five people who I know would meet my kids' needs. We're our children's inheritance, not a trust fund. It's understanding that our kingdom mission as followers of Jesus is an extravagant and borderline wasteful kind of generosity that witnesses to the abundant nature of the kingdom of God. So, I'm feeling a little less nervous and anxious now that I'm done. I don't have a concluding paragraph, guys. So, I'm going to pray, and then we'll receive communion together. Father, thank you for your words, for your teaching, for each other. Would you shape us into the people you want us to be, individually and corporately? We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.